This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Friday, May 29th, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. So on this show, we have something that I think of as the uh, taste like chicken index when one thing is compared to another thing, but that other thing might not help. Like the amount of beer produced by the giant brewer InBev in a year was said to be like, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of Olympic swimming pools worth of beer. Okay. But my favorite, the old saw, is about the size of Belgium, like Boko Haram controls an area in Nigeria about the size of Belgium, or Larsen C is the fourth largest ice shelf in the world, covering around 55,000 square kilometers, or nearly twice the size of Belgium. Here's Homeland Security Subcommittee Chairman Mike McCall back in February. ISIS now controls a territory the size of Belgium. But now we got a new comparison in the Taste Like Chicken Index. A comparison that brightens. It's not Watts. It's not Lumens. Here from today's Wall Street Journal. In North Dakota, 10 billion cubic feet of gas is flared every month. So much that from space, the rural Bakken area is brighter at night than Minneapolis. Brighter than Minneapolis. Well, that clarifies or illuminates, you might say. Because the space brightness of Minneapolis, that's just something we could all get our heads around. You know, although really from space, can you tell where Minneapolis ends and where St. Paul begins? Good question, but not the one question. Because today it is time for one question, one question only. And our guest, it's managing producer Joel Meyer. Joel is a Minneapolis native. He has a tattoo on his arm of Route 35 West. He was a golden gopher, but he hated all the drawn out winters. Hello, Joel. Hey, Mike. Glad to be invited. Here is your one question, one question only. How bright is Minneapolis? So I haven't lived there for a very long time, but I'm a bit of a homer, uh, not only a native, but a, a booster, an advocate for the Twin Cities. I do my best to spread the, the gospel of uh, the Twin Cities. A Minneapolis here, advocate. Here okay. in the, here, <laughs> exactly, here in the New York area. I'd like to answer this question by just simply saying, pretty bright. I mean, given all of the metro areas in the upper Midwest, yeah. it's really pretty bright. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's my answer. Pretty bright. From the, the IDS Center to the Wells Fargo Center to Target Plaza South with its colorful rainbow LED scheme that sort of spins around the building that was designed, by the way, by local hometown heroes, 3M, makers of uh, you know, scotch tape, yeah. post-it notes, yeah. and scotch guard. Yeah, in fact, the first M in 3M is the word Minnesota. Correct. Mining, manufacturing, the others. On the show today, I spiel about an ugly chicken and the gravitas it engenders. But first, Alex Winter, once the star of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I just say that to orient you, that's who the guy is, but let's not dwell on that. Winter is a very accomplished documentary filmmaker. His new movie is about the Silk Road, the drug exchange, but a lot more. The founder of the Silk Road was today sentenced in federal court to life in prison. His new doc, Alex Winter's new doc, is called Deep Web. Here's that discussion.
Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, hard for governments to trace. Tor, T-O-R, you might not know. Tor is essentially, it's a part of the internet where you could be anonymous. So you marry those two things and you get something like Silk Road. Silk Road is, was an online marketplace where you could sell anything. Actually, not anything. The guys behind Silk Road didn't want to sell child pornography and didn't want to allow executioners to ply their trade. None of this stopped the fact that it raised the hackles of uh, Senator Charles Schumer. Today, I'm calling on the DEA and the Department of Justice to immediately shut this site down before more damage is done. The new documentary, Deep Web, questions that, questions everything about Silk Road, and also orients you, if you're like me and you're interested in the story, but you couldn't quite crack the code. The director of that documentary is Alex Winter, and he's here with me now. Hello, Alex. Hey there. You're an actor, a former actor. You're in Bill and Ted. Excellent! But your main thing now is you're into the internet, into issues of security, and into documentary filmmaking. How'd you, how'd you first find out about Silk Road? I first took a, I would say, heated interest in the internet in the mid to late 80s. I was very fascinated with this, with the, the appearance of online community and the growth of that community and the ethos. There's many ethos to find there, but the, the ethos that exists there. What are the motives for these communities? Not just the fact that people may be, in those days, it was before the web, so it was the sort of Usenet BBS era. You had these news groups. You know, it wasn't just that someone had an interest in books or art or drugs or whatever that, that had them convening there. They had interest in privacy and anonymity. They had a desire to create anonymous communities. They had a desire to circumvent the state or, um, or other forms of control as they saw it. And that was very fascinating to me because it, it seemed clear to a large group of people um, who were sort of instrumental in building the Internet that with the advent of the web and, and the, the, the scaling of the internet, that down the road, meaning today, the world would be very different. We would have these massive global online communities, and that would raise all these implications. So, you know, for me, you know, being older, um, I was, you know, already well through college when Napster happened. I, you know, I'd already bought my music in nine different forms. So You didn't need I, to download it either. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. really, I was blown away by Napster, but I wasn't struck by it, the music service. I was struck by the community aspect because I had, it was a quantum leap from 10 years before. Suddenly, only 10 years later, when the internet was still quite crude in 98, 99, you had this kid, Sean Fanning, had created a way for 100 million simultaneous online people in their community. So Napster, to me, was a watershed technology for its community component, much more so than, than for getting Madonna tracks for free. So the Silk Road, to me, was the next big watershed moment um, in the evolution of the Internet and the implications around these issues. And like... Uh, Napster, it was thorny, as, as thorny as hell. I mean, on the surface, it's much more thorny than Napster because, you know, here's every drug imaginable being sold in an because anonymous... criminals, quote-unquote, Napster, you have to even convince people they're criminals and a, and a senator's not going to have a press conference saying, you downloaded exactly. uh, Counting Crows. Right. There is heroin being sold. Yes. There, there is every kind of drug being sold, and it doesn't seem that... Yeah, there's a community aspect. I've never been on Silk Road, but would it strike the user as this is mainly a place to sell drugs and some dude in the background is posting a manifesto? Or does it seem more like this is a free discussion board with a sideline of people selling drugs? It was both. Yeah. I mean, similar to Napster, it was a, a very robust community with an enormous amount of discourse. Those of us who are following the early days of the Silk Road are very aware 
of what was going on on the Silk Road forums. And the Silk Road forums were extremely active with thousands and thousands of people having discussions about politics, about privacy, about the drug war, about using technology to combat the drug war. This is not an, an endorsement of this, this marketplace or these people. It is a statement of fact. So we're talking about thousands of people in a marketplace, an anonymous marketplace. but well, Millions even. Millions. But they're... Either at the top or as the top administrator is DPR, stands for Dread Pirate Roberts. If you know the Princess Bride, this was really a brand, not a person, a brand. And different people would inhabit the brand and it would be passed down to the next generation. I am not the Dread Pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited the ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts, just as you will inherit it from me. The man I inherited from was not the real Dread Pirate Roberts either. His name was Kamabun. The real Roberts has been retired 15 years and living like a king in Patagonia. And the feds, as you document in interesting ways, eventually nab the guy. The guy they say is the dread pirate Roberts. Tell us about him. Well, the Silk Road appeared in 2011. And for a year, when it was really going on all cylinders, uh, there was no discernible leader. It was a community-run organization, as far as anyone could tell. There were systems administrators, but there was no leader. It was presumed that, that one of the systems administrators ran the joint. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until a year into the Silk Road's existence that someone claimed ownership of the uh, site from a sort of philosophical, political and managerial perspective. And that person showed up on uh, one of the systems administrator accounts and said, I am going to claim this. I am not the original creator of the Silk Road. I am inheriting it from its creator. Again, who knows what this is all fictitious usernames. It could all be nonsense. And I am calling myself the Dread Pirate Roberts because in The Princess Bride that stood and, and they were being whimsical and potentially there were book clubs and movie clubs on the Silk Road. There was a lot of levity on the Silk Road forums as there was in the Napster days. So they were, you know, they were sort of jesting around and saying, well, the the Dread Pirate Roberts idea is that it's passed down from generation to generation. It's similar to anonymous, I would say, not politically speaking, but this idea that, you know, this one mask represents the 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 entire community. The mask of the Dread Pirate Roberts is is all of our masks. And that was sort of implicit in, in the message of DPR. Uh, law enforcement, you know, quite rightly, immediately seized on that as the ringleader. And there were half a dozen three-letter agencies around the world hunting down this Dread Pirate Roberts. Eventually, they ferreted out and uh, targeted and believed that this, this young Texas native, Ross Ulbricht, who was living in San Francisco, was the Dread Pirate Roberts. And in a sting operation, they apprehended Ross um, in a public library on the internet, logged into a, a Silk Road administrator, central administrative login, and he was arrested and charged of being the Dread Pirate Roberts and the owner and creator of the site. We had you know, a long lead up to the trial. We had a three-week trial in New York. Uh, wherein Ross was convicted on all seven counts for which he was charged, which were, you know, primarily drug kingpin charge, uh, computer conspiracy, hacking, uh, facilitating hacking charges. And we now know that he was sentenced to life in prison. The judge, Catherine Forrest, federal judge, said what you did in connection with Silk Road was terribly destructive to our social fabric. Life sentence, there's so much There's so much weird stuff with this case, fascinating aspects. First of all, the prosecution explicitly said we want to make an example of him, which is sometimes implied or, you know, what you would charge the prosecution with trying to do. They said it. And then there was this side line of they char- originally charged, then withdrew the charge, but still introduced in court the idea 
that Ross hired a hitman. And I'm not sure what the details of that were and how they presented that as evidence, but they didn't actually charge him with, you know, murder or contract killing. They first brought out these potential charges against Ross that he that the Dread Pirate Roberts had had attempted to hire hitmen to to kill people uh, within the Silk Road that were threatening the Silk Road mm-hmm. or extorting the Silk Road. It turned out that the that murder for hire scheme was actually concocted by a rogue DEA agent who was stealing money from the Silk Road and had actually stolen the money that he claimed another he set somebody up. Yeah. Uh, but then it, it got very complicated because then it within his duties within the DEA not as the rogue he then said oh i believe that there's this murder for hire going on which he didn't tell them he had actually initiated i'm going to fake this guy i've gotten to this guy he's now under our control one of the administrators one this of the- was a like 47 year old family man exactly. in salt lake city and Deep yeah. webb has a picture of him in his family in matching sweaters yeah that, that- Cuts right through exactly what you need to know about this guy. Yeah. But on the side, he was on the Silk Road, like selling anyone he was, pretty he powerful was, drugs. He was, yes. Yeah. He was a, a chief vendor on the Silk Road. And so they staged his murder, like, yeah. you know, literally almost with ketchup and sent pictures. It was really him. Like, he pretended to he be did. dead. He did. He was under the police control. He was under law enforcement control. Because you point. showed a picture of a hand out from under a tarp and there was blood on it. But this was the real guy. The real guy who Correct. was really going as what? Chronic pain? Exactly. Was his his name username on, was Chronic Pain. Username Chronic yeah. Pain, like, poured whatever fake blood on himself. Yes. And that was supposed to be proof of the murder that they tried to pin on Ross Ulbricht. Correct. Wow. Yeah. So what happened was is those he was never indicted for any. Ross wasn't. Ross was never either indicted nor was there any burden of proof on the prosecution to prove that he had attempted to kill people. Right. So, but, but let's be clear. You know, they, they arrest him. They put out a press release. They're like, here's what he did wrong. He ran the Silk Road and hired a hitman and killed a guy. Right. That's, tried that's, to kill a guy. Tried yeah. to kill a guy. And yeah. that's, yeah, well, he thought he killed a guy because right. we faked it. That was, you know, in the public. That's poisoning the public. The public thinks, wow, this guy hires a hitman. He's a bad dude. Yeah. Then when it comes to actually charging him with the crime the charge never comes. No, it never comes, but it's it was it's what's referred to as an overt act and and that means that it can be used the these events can be used in the context of the drug kingpin and other charges. So, uh, make no mistake, the these murder for hire allegations were lengthily laid out during the course of the trial. Prosecution spent hours and hours and hours reading uh, Dread Pirate Roberts' user logs as well as diaries that they found on Ross's laptop wherein he supposedly uh, takes ownership of instigating these or, or cooperating in them. So it was a, a, an interesting thing to watch. In and what, court, what's the legal phrase they use for one? Overt act. Overt act. Yeah. So you're not charging them with murder. but You don't have using, to prove it. You don't have to prove it, but you're, prov- you're showing that we, we could prove he's a drug kingpin because he also thought he murdered these people. Exactly. Even though we're not charging them with Even though we're not yeah. charging yeah. or nor is the burden of proof on them to to actually to prove that he did it. So that's a tough position to be in because a jury will just look at you as a, as a murderer, yeah. but no one has had to prove that you were. He, so he didn't have to fight the murder charges, but doesn't the lawyer say we pretty much have to fight the murder charges? We have to get this out of their mind. What's their answer to these to these murder charges? Well, 
The trial ended quite abruptly. The, the defense was attempting to bring forward two expert witnesses, a Bitcoin expert who was going to explain how Bitcoin, because they found Bitcoin on Ross's laptop, and they were going to, among other things, because I wasn't you know, privy to the defense's strategy, but clearly they were going to explain how Bitcoin wallets can be moved around, how easy it is to hack laptops, especially given these corrupt agents and other people, you know, hacker type people within the Silk Road environment who had access to usernames and passwords and so therefore could conceivably plant evidence on somebody's computer. And uh, I w- it was imagined that that's where they were going. They were not allowed those witnesses. There are legal, I mean, I'm not going to get into whether that was right or wrong. Yeah. There are legal reasons why that happened. And, and they were explained in detail by the judge. But the fact is, is that we never really ever got to hear Ross's defense. We never got that far. I mean, there's way more to the story than we know. And it's not, again, to exonerate Ross or to say he's a martyr or Mm -hmm. a fall guy or anything. It's just to say that it's part, a very big part of what my film is about is how difficult it is to both solve crimes in the digital age and to try those crimes in court in the digital age. It's it's one of the many issues that the film attempts to raise. And having been there and watched it, it's, it's extremely challenging for both sides, prosecution and defense. Okay, so the, here's my cross-examination of you. Do you think that there is any real doubt that Ross Ulbricht at least was a top administrator of a site that facilitated serious drug trade? There's no doubt. No doubt. One of the things that excited you was this uh, confluence of selling the drugs and, and getting involved in illegal activity and also the community discussing it. Maybe this is naive on my part, but have those discussions. There's nothing wrong with those discussions. Have them on tour anonymously. Why must it be married to the selling of the drugs? Or is there something I'll to tell say, you like, why. if you really believe the talking the talk, you got to walk the walk? Is that I'll it? tell you why. I, 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 I saw this happen with Napster. When I first met Sean Fanning in 2001, and he was quite young and Napster was falling apart and he was really fried. He had been pretty much destroyed at this point. I said to him, the first thing I said to him was like, not to get heady on you, but from my perspective, Napster doesn't have anything to do with music. It has everything to do with community. But you need music as a delivery system in order to build a community. And he said, that's absolutely correct. He goes, that was my that was my whole vision with Napster was to bring as many people in the world together in one space on the Internet as humanly possible. I knew I needed some entity to attract them to that environment. And again, this is not to exonerate it. It's kind of almost like business thinking. I think with the Silk Road, and maybe this was a conscious choice. I'm never going to get to have that conversation with Ross or whoever created it that I did with Sean. But my guess is, is that it was the same mentality, which is if you're going to build this big community that matters, that scales, as they say in the tech community, that actually has any size and significance, a bunch of people in a chat room ain't going to cut it. It just ain't. It's going to, you know, maybe they're going to be there for a minute and then it's going to like break off into something else. If you really want to put millions of people together, you better have something that brings them there. And in this case, it was drugs. Yeah. One last thing I want to ask you, narrated by Keanu Reeves. Yes. He was Ted Bill. Yay, that's okay, the first. Got it right. Wow, okay. 25 years. <laughs> so um, was it the, wanting him to narrate it? He's a big name. He does a great job. But I sense that there was like a Matrix-y thing going on. Like a lot of the oh, graphics. Oh, darn it. We worked so hard to try to keep that from, I mean, seriously. <laughs> no, we you know like, what I mean? Like the, 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 the graphics. Uh, in oh, the, no, no. I wouldn't say that. Well, I 
think that there's maybe a little blue pill and red pill, and right. which reality do you choose? Yeah. I don't know. There seemed a whiff of that, and that's another reason he seems an appropriate choice to make. Yeah, I mean, look, there's no doubt that we like, you know, Keanu did Johnny Mnemonic, he did Matrix, he did Scanner Darkly, yeah. and he did those movies. I've known him a gazillion. Is he into these issues, by the way? Do he, you talk that's with him? what I'm yeah. getting at. Yeah. He loves this stuff. Yeah. You know, we've been, he and I have been like, you know, reading Philip K. Dick together and talking about like what it means since we were kids. Oh, wow. And, Philip you know, K. Dick always wrote about twins, and you guys are. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were, you know, we were really into these worlds and Gibson and, you know, all of that jazz uh, before you did Johnny Mnemonic, which was before Matrix. So, you know, these are issues that we've that we've always been fascinated by. You know, we've been watching each other's work closely our whole adult lives. You know, I've been making films since I stopped acting in the 90s. And and he got involved in this movie from the very beginning and was sort of a consulting producer and was around for all the edits. And so it seemed a natural choice for those reasons that he understood the subject. So I knew that he would even like in the subtext feel like he knew what he was talking about, which I thought was important. Right. I knew that Keanu has this great ability to be both emotional and distant at the same time, which is which is not easy to do performatively. Because to me, Andy Greenberg, the Wired reporter, and Lynn and Kirk Ulbrich are really the guides of the movie, and I did not want the voiceover to become the guide. That's why I say my opinion doesn't matter. I really don't think it does. I really am trying to watch these two sides and f- trying to figure out what the hell is going on. That's what the movie's about. And then thirdly, of course, you know, here's a guy who represents the cyber community. And to your point about it having those qualities, I would argue that the Wachowskis grow out of the same radical community that uh, a lot of the people from this community also grow out of, going all the way back to the 70s. I think that there's a simpatico in the type of work that they do, you know, and Longo and, you know, what was in Mnemonic and certainly the Philip K. Dick. I'd say they're, they're, they all come from the same place. Uh, so it's inescapable in a way. But we really tried to keep the Neo out of his voice. We worked really <laughs> hard to do that. <laughs> yes. Alex Winter is the director of Deep Web. It appears or debuts this weekend on the Epics channel. Alex's last documentary was about Napster and other things called Downloaded. Alex Winter, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. I took a liking to a chicken. There is a species of fowl in the American West, the sage grouse. Used to number 16 million. Now the species is down to about 150,000. But by the way, that 16 million figure, that was from 100 million years ago. So if I know something about the lifespan of the sage grouse, all those sage grouses would be dead by now, right? I mean, 100 million years? I don't get that argument. What I do get is that the Department of the Interior has a plan to save these flightless chicken-like creatures from possible extinction. And I get that from WBZK Channel 7, Bozeman, Montana. And the Obama administration has unveiled plans to protect sage-grouse habitat across the West. Couple things. Sure, it's Bozeman, Montana, but they got the sweet sweep sound effect. Can we hear that again, Andrea? ...has unveiled plans... To and then noting that... ...the new initiative to preserve sage-grouse habitat covers an estimated 165 million acres, an area that's nearly the size of Texas. My God, that's 25 times the size of Belgium. The Western governors seem to like the plan. It includes a provision that oil rigs not be put just anywhere, but sort of be clustered. And this is because raptors and predators of the sage grouse perch up in the oil rigs and they swoop down to eat the little sage grouse. Tastes like chicken, the predators tell me. Predictably, this plan has opponents like industry groups. Also, 
The Raptors themselves, the birds of prey, they've organized to oppose the plan. The Family Advocacy Liberty Coalition of North America, or Falcon, uh, actually has been revealed to be just a nest of Falcons funneling money to a front organization. They have been unbeaked. But when it comes to the sage grouse, you are smart to complain. In fact, the bird's name practically demands it. Sage grouse. And I've been thinking about the sage grouse a lot. Not the chicken, not the bird. The concept of the sage grouse, the wise worrier, the perspicacious grumbler. We give a lot of credence to the sage grouse in our society, and I wonder if we should. So in the Wall Street Journal today, when the paper wasn't talking about the brightness of Minneapolis, it was talking about the brightness of the prospects of college graduates. Class of 2015 is summa cum lucky in the job market. These college grads enjoy a jobless rate below the average of the last 40 years, foretelling higher wages in the years ahead. And I can relate to this development because when I graduated, it was a down economy. But within the next year or two, the economy heated up. So the prospects of a class, one or two classes below me, was gangbusters as compared to my cohort who had to rely on working in their dad's dry cleaners or waiting for the technology of podcasting to be invented. But I remember at the time, the concept wasn't expressed to us as, hey, look, we're experiencing a trough in the business cycle. The concept was, gentlemen, ladies, you are graduating into a vastly different world. Do not expect the good times to come back. This is a new reality. It's different, but by different, we mean worse. Implication, permanently worse. And those words were seen as oh-so-wise. And that advice totally ignored the fact that the business cycle is a cycle, and it would eventually go up. And even after it was proved that the words were wrong, I think they're still seen as wise. Let's take the other side to that argument. When times are good, when times are up high in the business cycle. Sometimes we'll hear people say, you know what? This is a new paradigm. I think we've entered a new paradigm. I don't think this is a bubble. I think things are going to go up from here. And the people saying that are wrong. Now, my point is they're just as wrong as the people who told me as a graduate without supposed prospects, just as wrong as saying things are never going to get better. But don't we look at the guy who says things are dire as a wise man, the ant? And don't we look at the guy who says things will never get worse as a dumb guy, the grasshopper? The claims are similar, yet whoever tuts and shakes his head in complaint is seen as wise. Now let's take presidential politics. This could be the most important election in our lifetime, which is said of every election, because now the world is a changing, complicated, increasingly dangerous place. The Republicans outdo themselves to complain about international strife, which, of course, is always Obama's fault. The Democrats did the same with Bush, by the way. I don't want to be Mr. False Equivalency. I do think it is more the fault of the invader than the withdrawer. But, of course, the world's a dangerous place. It's always been a dangerous place. And we shouldn't be sanguine. We shouldn't be blasé. But the conceit that things are bad, we need to worry about this, it's seen as imbued with wisdom. Our learned men, our gray beards who exhibit the sage grouse are said to have the most gravitas, gravitas, weightiness. This is the condition attendant to the sage grouse. If you complain, if you acknowledge that things are going poorly, you mark yourself as serious of purpose internationally and meteorologically. 
Because in this country's politics, there are two forms of policy to get behind when it comes to climate change. One is to say climate change is a huge problem. We've got to do something about it, though. It's probably too late, and we're really just debating how much we're delaying our own destruction. On the other side is denial. But that's not an optimistic denial. It's also more grousing. They want to outsage the sage grousing of the people who are worried about the earth heating up. They say climate change is exaggerated, but then they engage in the sage grouse. But really, all this talk is hurting American competitiveness, and my jowls are getting jowlier and reverberating as I tut tut. I'm not even tut tutting, it's just my face flapping against itself. Here's what I believe. I believe global warming is real and caused by humans, but I believe maybe there's reason for optimism because we haven't really tried to fight it, and we're already saying we can't. Okay, I'm going to get attacked for naivete or wishful thinking. See, wishful thinking is the enemy of the sage grouse. Wishful thinking, or as we wishful thinkers dub ourselves, open-minded brainstorming, open-minded brainstorming where the default setting isn't necessarily defeat, Wishful thinkers, we're the lazy dog and the sleepy cat and the yellow duck who have no interest in helping the little red hen make bread. Red hen, sage grouse, just saying. Maybe we value the lessons of the sage grouse because as a species, we've been shown to have a greater aversion to loss than a hunger for gain. Behavioral economics dubs this aspect of the human psyche a disutility, but it is how we think. We're drawn to the fretter, to the worrier. But I tend to think we put the sage grouse on a pedestal, though not literally under new Department of Interior guidelines. But we valorize the sage grouse because personally, the sage grouse is the opposite of so many of us. We're actually profligate. We spend too much and we worry that we don't worry enough so that when we see a worrier, we say, that guy's sagacious. Anyway, I hope you found these sage grouse complaints wise or at least as wise as the protections to keep the actual literal sage grouse grousing in the West for years to come. Check in later for the next in my series of Mike Takes Animal Names Way Too Seriously as we delve into the aquatic cousin of the sage grouse, the koi carp. And that's it for this week's show. Andrea Salenzi can be drawn into wire. In fact, she's more ductile than potassium. Joel Meyer, the managing producer, is active at dusk. In fact, he's more vespertine than 13 Mongolian gerbils. On the other side of the scale of crepuscularity, there's Andy Bowers, our executive producer. He's active at dawn. In fact, he's said to be more matutinal than a chimney swift and an American woodcock combined. The gist, by the way, we're going to be on uh, this weekend's This American Life. Listen for that. There's also a Slate Plus video of how we, meaning mostly Andrea, puts the gist together. You could buy a membership to Slate Plus or try it out free for a couple of weeks. The gist, we are being investigated for illegal combination of chimney swifts and American woodcocks. Sorry about that, but thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier. And in the latest episode, we'll talk about why you might want to cultivate a shrine. And also, we'll discuss some questions to help you figure out how to set up habits in a way that will work for you. You can subscribe to Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply.